I want to preach to you this morning about worship out of Genesis chapter number 22. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Let's read verse 5 once more and then we'll pray. Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask that you would meet with hearts this morning. Father, if you do not meet with us, if you don't speak to our hearts, then it's all been in vain. It's just been dead religion this morning. Lord, I know that you're capable... And I know you have a heart to speak to us. Lord, you, you've spent all of man's sojourn upon this earth striving to speak to him, to communicate with him, to meet with him, to affect him, to save him, to redeem him. Lord, I pray that this morning that grand purpose would not be lost upon us here. Lord, if there's any amongst us that are lost and undone without Christ, show them that their greatest need, above and beyond all, is that they be saved by Your amazing grace. And I pray if there's some, Lord, that are backslidden, that they'd be reclaimed, they'd draw nigh unto You this morning. Lord, those that are discouraged, they'd be encouraged. Just every need, that would it would be met, Lord, in this place this morning. Father, we want to be sure to glorify You for it, to give You the praise and the honor and the glory that's, that's worthy to Your precious name. And we want to thank You for it. Lord, we love You. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse number 5 has something astounding that we find in Scripture. And I'll say a word about it here in just a moment. 
As I approach Genesis chapter 22, I'm keenly aware of how familiar a passage this is to anybody that reads their Bible. Or maybe you don't even read your Bible, but you grew up in Sunday school. And you've heard this story time and time again. You know, one of the precious things about the Word of God is all that we can see in the midst of it. When I look at Genesis chapter number 22, I see a picture of Jesus Christ. Don't you? Isn't He a picture in the person of Isaac? of the Lord Jesus Christ. The willing Son, willing to go and have the burden laid upon Him. How interesting it is, even to the minutest detail that God provides for us, that Abraham laid the wood for the sacrifice upon Isaac. And one day upon Calvary's hill, another Isaac came and had the wood laid upon his shoulders as he willingly went to be a sacrifice for your sins and mine. He wasn't forced to go. He was God, friend. God in the flesh. Nobody could have put Him on that cross if He hadn't been willing to be put upon that cross. He said this, No man taketh my life from me. That's an absolute truth. No man taketh my life from me. He said, I lay it down of myself. He said, I lay it down that I may take it up again. This, this power is given me from my Father, the willing Son, the willing sacrifice. I see in Abraham in many ways a picture of God the Father. Boy, ain't he a picture? That willingly gave his son. You understand what Isaac was to Abraham? I mean, we're going to really preach it here in a moment, but you just stick with me. You understand what Isaac was to Abraham? Isaac was the son of promise. And Isaac was vested all the hopes, all the promises, all of the covenant of God was wrapped up in his son Isaac. He was his only son, at least the only one that God recognized at this point. Abraham, of course, had Ishmael, but Ishmael isn't even considered in this passage. When God speaks to Abraham, He says, Take thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. He gave it all, didn't He? He gave it all, didn't He? He laid everything down that the will of God might be fulfilled. What a picture of God the Father. I mean, we get this idea sometimes that, that God the Father, you know, He's a real mean guy. But that, that Jesus, He's on our side so God can't get to us. That's how we picture things sometimes. That's nonsense. God the Father loves you just as much as Jesus Christ ever loved you. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He what? He gave His only begotten Son. The book of Acts says it was by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God that He was crucified. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Calvary was not an audible. Calvary was the grand scheme and plan and purpose. What a picture we see. But then, you know, I, I see in many ways in Isaac a picture of you and I. Here's Isaac, and he is destined to death. He is a damned individual destined to death. That's his place on that altar. God has ordered that he's to be the one upon that altar. But then all of a sudden, boy, isn't this, oh my, isn't this beautiful? You notice the Bible says the angel of the Lord. I wonder how long it's going to take for people to realize that that Bible's written on purpose. Not on accident. It's not just a compilation of folklore and of, uh, and of colloquial stories all uh, lumped together and sewn together by man's ingenuity. But that is the divinely inspired and perfectly preserved Word of God says exactly what it means. And what does it say? It says the angel of the Lord. That phrase, the angel of the Lord, particularly in the Old Testament, reflects what we uh, call, I was going to say what we theologians, that's a bold statement, isn't it? Not what we, it's what those theologians call, not me. What we call a theophany or a Christophany. 
This is a pre-Bethlehem incarnation or, or uh, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have time. If you wanted to take the time, stay an extra two and a half hours, we could do it, but I don't think we'll get a vote on that. Then we could go through Scripture and I could show you time and time and time and time and time when Jesus Christ... Who do you think it was that stood in the way of Balaam and his donkey? Who do you think it was uh, that appeared on this hillside with Abraham? Who do you think it was that appeared on the hillside before Joshua? Who do you think it was that foretold the birth of Samson? Who do you think it was that was the fourth man in the fire that was like the Son of God? I mean, listen, he didn't, Christ did not exist, begin to exist at the point of His birth. He was incarnate at the point of His birth. In other words, He was made flesh at that point. But the Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was... You say, what was in the beginning? I thought in the beginning God created. That's the first thing that ever happened. The first thing that ever was, was in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. You say, who is that Word? Well, verse 14 tells us in John chapter number 1 that the Word was made flesh, dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Christ didn't begin, to, didn't begin to exist at Bethlehem. He was incarnate at Bethlehem. And what a picture it is of you and I as sinners destined and damned to hell. That was our place upon the cross of Calvary. But all of a sudden, just when the death blow was about to be stricken, here comes the angel of the Lord. And he says, Abraham, Abraham. And something interesting is found here. I, oh my. He grabs him by the hand. He says, Abraham, Abraham. He says, now I know thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And something interesting happens. Abraham lifts up his eyes. When he lifts up his eyes, he sees a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. That ram is a picture of... So what happened now? Listen now. We'll get there together. Abraham was willing to give. He was broken. His spirit, his will was broken. Isaac was destined to be sacrificed. Then all of a sudden, Abraham hears a voice. And he sees a substitute. All of a sudden, things change. Now Isaac comes off the altar. He hears the voice of the Savior and he says, Hold, wait, stop, lay not thine hand upon Isaac. And he looks up and he sees a ram caught in a thicket. That was the substitute. That was the one that took his place. That was the reason Isaac could come off the altar was because the ram went on the altar. What a picture. What a picture of you and I. Sin, sick, lost, destined to hell because of who and what we are. But then we hear a voice. We hear a voice. It says, if you'll come to me, I will in no wise cast you out. We hear a voice that stands up and sets forth and says, I'll take your place. You'll only allow me to. What a picture. But I don't want to preach on any of that this morning. <laughs> I do, but I, but I can't preach on all of it. Amen. I don't want us to necessarily look at, at Isaac as a picture of the sinner. And I don't necessarily want us to look at Isaac as a picture of the Savior. And I don't even want us really to look at Abraham as a picture of God the Father. But I want us to focus on this unique word found in verse number 5. Abraham says something very interesting. He leaves the donkey. He leaves his goods with the men that were following him. And he turns to them and he says, I and the lad will go yonder and what? Worship. And will come again. This is the first time that the word worship is found in the Word of God. Something interesting that, uh, again, those theologians tell us is there's what we call the principle of first mention. In other words, when something is mentioned in the Word of God, 
for the first time, it has qualities that will, will bear through until either the end of the Word of God or until something theologically and dispensationally shifts and changes and alters their character or their nature. And so when we see worship found for the first time, by the way, worship is found prior to this, but the word worship is found here. When God defines what worship is, it presents to us some characteristics of what worship, true worship is. You know what the Bible says in John chapter number 4, don't you? Listen, Turn with me to John chapter number 4. And I want you to hear what the Word of God says. Christ is talking to the woman at the well. And He makes this statement. This, you know, Christ is witnessing to this woman is what He's doing. He is telling this woman about Himself and about how He can save her. And she begins to do what lots of folks begin to do when they're presented with the gospel. Uh, the first thing she does is she tries to put him off. And then uh, she tries to say, well, you don't, you don't know who I am. And he says, no, I do know you. But then she starts to talk theology. You mark my words. Anytime you, when someone's under conviction, they always want to talk theology. They always want to debate when God is trying to speak to them. If you're witnessing to someone and they start wanting to ask questions that have nothing to do with the gospel, there's a good chance they're under conviction. They're doing everything they can to try to push away what God... That's what this woman did. She said, well, you know, our fathers say we're to worship here in this mountain. And she says, your fathers say we're to worship at Jerusalem. Where are we supposed to worship? Listen to what Christ says to her. Boy, I mean, let me tell you something. I don't believe in being unkind to people. You know that. You know me. I'm the definition of kindness. I don't believe in being unkind to people. But I want you to notice how pointed what his statement is, how pointed it is. Verse 21 Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. You know what Christ basically said to her? Man, I'm going to get to preaching. We're going to get back in Genesis 22, I promise you. But this needs to be said. You know what He says to her? He says, you don't even know what worship is. You're lost. We spend a lot of time trying to get into debates with lost people when they don't need logic, they need salvation. Now, I believe we ought to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should be bullheaded or illogical. I understand the importance of apologetics and of knowing what you believe and being able to defend it. But understand that a spiritually dead person can't talk spiritual things. They're spiritually dead. You'll get no further debating them than you would if you went down to the cemetery, went down or went down to the uh, to the funeral home, went down into the basement because in them creepy basements that's where they keep the bodies. You know that, and go down there and start trying to have a conversation with a dead man. You won't get any further. You may win the argument, but you'll not win them. Mark my words. It says you don't know what you worship. You don't know what worship is. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. Then he says this in verse. 23, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I want to spend a few moments and preach to you about this true worship or some qualities of true worship that we see in Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to forego trying to give a clear definition of worship. And the reason why is because the Word of God never gives us a concrete, laid-out blueprint for what worship necessarily is. 
Oftentimes, worship is seen as something that the individual is doing in the quietude of their prayer closet. Sometimes worship is seen as being a corporate thing that's taking place uh, there in Jerusalem. I I promise you this, worship is not hitting a golf ball or throwing a fishing line. Oh, hey, man, right? Okay. So I'm not trying to be obscure about what worship is. I'm merely saying that we have to be careful trying to put too many parameters on what worship is. Because I do believe that praise and worship are two different things. You can praise God without being right with God. The Bible says that He maketh even the heathen to praise Him. You can praise God without being right with You can't worship God and be wrong with God. To worship literally means to ascribe worthiness to something. Worship is the times when we engulf ourselves in the magnitude of God and when we ascribe to Him the proper glory and worthiness that is due Him. It is when, and by the way, worship, false humility is not worship. This false humility thing is infecting our churches. You'll hear people that will get up and they'll say, Oh boy, I'm going to make somebody mad. I'm glad you're here. I'll preach to you. You'll hear people, and I've said it, everybody's said it, but you'll hear people will get up and say sometimes, they'll say, you know, well, I'm going to sing and I, I ain't much of a singer. Well, I mean, listen, it's church. Ain't none of us getting Grammys. I, I, I get that. But, but sometimes people, they, they go on and on and on. And sometimes I think, well, if you think you're this bad, why are you singing? Right? I, and there's a balance. I mean, we ought not be puffed up with pride, but sometimes that, that's false humility. That's self-deprecation. True humility is not about how bad we are. True humility is about how grand and glorious He is. It's not about seeing how bad we are relative to everyone else or how bad we are relative to someone we're trying to impress. It's about seeing how lowly we are compared to how highly He is. Amen? That's what true humility is. And so, if we're really going to worship God, I think it's when we draw the curtain closed around our heart and when we ascribe to God the glory that's due to His name. I think worship is something we can do in a church house. I think worship is something we ought to do. In a, in a, I think too many churches don't have time for worship today. Let me say that, that there, we ought to strike a balance between working in His field and worshiping at His feet. There's a place for both of them. Amen? I know some churches where people dry up on the vine because they never have real worship. I know other churches where they do, all they do is worship with people dying and going to hell in the shadow of their church steeple. There's a balance to this thing, you understand. But what Abraham does is an act of service. But it's also an act of submission. It's also an act of sacrifice. I want you to notice three things, just quick qualities. I could probably name you 300 if... If I had the time, but three things, characters that we see about characteristics about true worship that I believe hold true even in this day that we live in. I want you to notice, first off, that true worship is a separated matter. There are some things that Abraham had to get out of his life before he could worship God. Can I tell you a reason that a lot of folks never worship is because there's something else that they're worshiping. There's something in their heart that has enshrined itself You know that you only have one throne room in your heart and life. Only one. I've been reading that. Oh, well, I'll have to save that. (laughs) You know, there was a time when the Bible says in the book of Judges there was no king in Israel. Well, it's not that there was no king. It's that there was no king that was visible because then it goes on to say, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You know what happens when you don't bow the knee to Jesus Christ? You bow the knee to self. That's what happens. There were some things that Abraham had to get out of his life if he could really worship God. I want you to notice first off that he had to get separated from the world. 
Now you say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, if you look back in the previous chapter, you find that, that Abraham has been in a Philistine nation, in a Philistine city. He went there, uh, he sinned, he did wrong, he did unrighteous in some ways, but after he got right with God, God blessed him and he prospered, and he's been living in the midst of a Philistine nation. And we know, if we read our Bibles, that the Philistines are a picture of the world. They're the continuous antagonist of God's people. They are always... And by the way, the Philistine nations were somewhere... We know where, but they were somewhere between Egypt and Canaan. You know, that's where a lot of Christians want to land. Somewhere between Egypt and Canaan. They want to land somewhere. They don't want to be right where God wants them to be, but they don't want to go back to what they used to be. That's worldliness. When you leave Egypt, Egypt is a picture of sin and of death. When you leave Egypt, when you're redeemed and born again, God doesn't expect you to stay in the desert and to stay in the wilderness. There is a promised land. There is a land of Canaan that you have an inheritance in. There is a victorious life that you can live. But too often what Christians do is they either never taste of what Canaan's like or they taste of it and turn back and start to head back to Egypt and land in the Philistines' land somewhere. He spent years in this Philistine nation, but now God speaks to him and says, Abraham, I want you to leave there, and I want you to go to Moriah. We know if we've studied our Bibles where Moriah is, we know that that was the land of Israel. We know more specifically that that would have been the area that Jerusalem was in. We know even more specifically, and you can believe what you want. I'll tell you what I believe. When you go to preaching, preach it how you believe it. I believe that this spot was the very spot. You don't have to believe that, but I believe that. I believe this was the very spot that Christ was crucified on, was where this altar had been built. You see, there were some things that Abraham had to get out of before he truly worshipped. Too often times we can't worship. You know, remember, worship is ascribing worthiness to God. When we're living in sin, we're telling God he's not worth it. Oh, I know that's simple. I know it's, it's, it's basic and elementary, but it's the truth of the matter. When we go to the world to get satisfaction, we're telling God that He does not satisfy us. There are a lot of things. Church has become a lot of things that it ought not to become in these days that we live in. Don't you believe that? Church is now, I mean, it's become a bar room. It's become uh, just a, another neon a bathed pool hall. It's just become a place of entertainment and of carnality. You know Why? Because where worship isn't, worldliness has to reside. By the same token, where worldliness is, worship will never be. You know when, you know when you'll find out what real worship is? And when I say worship, I'm not necessarily talking about raising their, your hand. I'm not necessarily talking about shouting. I'm not necessarily talking about weeping. I, I think all of those things can be done when you worship. And I think you can worship and not do all those things. But I'm saying to really enjoy the presence and power of God and to spend time needing nothing but Him, you're going to have to get out of the world and the wickedness of it. We live in a day, and, and listen, I, I think we live in an over-medicated society. Now, with that said, I think there's places for medication. I, I, people ask me sometimes, are you against medication? I usually tell them, no, people, people that I'm around probably need to be on more medication. <laughs> I think there's a place to it, and I'm not being derogatory, nor am I being condescending. But let me say this. Most people in this society that we live in can't even function without having something pumped into their body to keep them from hitting rock bottom. There's something missing in the day that we live in. I mean, I understand a few. I understand one here or there. But it's, it's an epidemic, neighbor. 
I mean, people are having to pump things into their body just to survive from day to day. What's happened? They're not satisfied. Not satisfied. They're either not saved or if they are saved, they're living out of the way. And, oh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying everybody that has to take medication is. But there are some that they're saved, but they're just miserable. They're just miserable. They're not serving God. They're not living for Him. They've got no prayer life. They've got no study life. They, are defe- they have cut themselves off from the vine, and they wonder why they're drying up and dying. You see, as long as the world satisfies you, worship won't. But you'll find that if you get satisfied with worship, you won't need the world anymore. You know, it's interesting. You go back through through society. There was a time. It's not like this now because music's just awful. Most most of the stuff comes across the radio today. If you've got a brain, it'll make your ears bleed. Amen? But there was a time. There was a time when Nashville did everything it could to bottle what was going on in camp meetings. Go back and listen to them. Listen to how many songs. Go back and listen to I Saw the Light. I mean, listen, if I was Albert E. Brumley, I'd be upset. Hank Williams flat out ripped off. He set me free. You ever noticed it? I can bring the piano player up here. We can do a test. What were they trying to do? They'd go to these old-timey meetings, saints shouting it out, people worshiping. They'd say, boy, if we could put that on vinyl, we'd really make some money. Oh, that's not the only example. We'd go through, but I ain't going to spend all the time to do it. I'm just merely saying that there was a time when the world did everything. You know why? Because it was real and it was genuine. Now things have flipped, turned around. And our churches have grown so dead, we're having to turn them into rock concerts to try to get people come through the doors. Maybe if we had some true, real worship, people would be satisfied. We see they had to be separated from the world. I want you to notice a second thing. He had to be separated from his will. The first thing that the Lord said, this is interesting. The Lord did not say, Abraham, I want you to offer Isaac. That's not what the Lord said at first. What did the Lord say? He said, Abraham, Abraham. What did Abraham say? He said, behold, here am I. You ever had someone do this to you? I've had people do this to me. They'll come up, they'll say, can I ask you a favor? That's the worst thing you can hear from someone. Can I ask you a favor? Now, if somebody comes up to me and says, can I borrow this, can I borrow that, can you do that? That don't bother me. But most of the time when somebody comes up and they say, can I ask you for a favor? Don't ever say yes, because you don't know what that favor is. It might be, can I ask you a favor? Sure. Can I borrow a cup of sugar? Yeah, no problem. It might be, can I ask you a favor? Sure. Can I have one of your kidneys? It's not okay then, am I right? You don't know. It's total surrender to say, here am I, before you even know what God's asking. You know why a lot of people don't ever worship? They're afraid to. They're afraid to. They're afraid it's going to embarrass them. Let me tell you something. Old Bob Jones Sr. once said this, everybody ought to get in the glory once. Just once at least. Just to prove that they will. I've had people say sometimes, and it's funny, you know, when people come to our church, there's we get two kinds of people. I don't know if you're aware of this, but we are in pretty close proximity to a a large college. You aware of that large? I'm not going to mention any names, but we're in pretty close proximity to a large Bible college. Did you know that? To a large anybody? And I'm not going to mention any names, but it's in PAL, okay? And and listen, I'm not going to tell you who the pastor is. 
but his first name's Clarence. And, and listen, they worship different than we do. That's just the truth. Anybody that's been there, been here, I mean, I'm not, I'm not gospel. I'm not telling anything that nobody knows. But that's just the way that's fine. That's, I pastor this church. I don't pastor that one. That's why we're independent Baptists. What he does, none of my business, vice versa. But it's funny because being in that proximity, sometimes people will come to our church that have been going there. And it's always interesting to see their responses when they walk through, through our church. Because it's always, always one, you always hear them say one of two things. They always either go, man, I didn't know church could be like this. Or some of them say, man, I didn't know church could be like this. <laughs> it's culture shock. Never seen anything like that before. Never been in a church that worships in that way before. Well, people can worship how they wish. But let me just say this. A lot of folks will never worship because they're afraid to, because they're too prideful and they're afraid it's going to embarrass their flesh. They won't cry because they don't cry. They won't raise their hands because they don't raise their hands. They won't shout because they don't shout. Now, listen, if, you, if that's just not you, that's fine. But I believe when God says, Abraham, I'd say, behold, here am I. I don't believe God's going to ask me to do a backflip off that piano. I don't believe that. But if he did, I reckon I'd have to or be out of the will of God. Right? We okay this morning? I I guess I'd have to. Now, there's some things I know God's not going to ask me to do because the Bible teaches clearly against it. But there's some things. I mean, listen, if God says shout, I reckon I'd shout. If, if If God brings the tears, I'd just go ahead and let them flow. I'm just merely saying there has to be a, a, a separation from our will if we're ever going to worship. And I've had people come here sometimes say, I'm just not that way. But you give it a month or two and God really moving in their hearts and they turn into that way. Yeah, now, if that's not you, that's fine. You, you're not second class around here. It's not a competition. God help us when worship becomes a competition in the flesh. I'm not saying that, but I am saying this. I reckon before I said, I'm just not that way, I'd find out first what God expects of me. There has to be a separation from your will. Notice the third thing. There has to be a separation from your worries. He says to the men that are with him, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. The only thing that Abraham took up on that mountain with him was his knife, the wood, and his son. That's it. Everything else he left at the bottom of the hill. A lot of folks ain't never going to really truly worship because their body may be in this church house, but their mind is at their job or their mind is at their house and what all needs to be done. Or maybe because their mind's at the restaurant they're headed to. Let me tell you something. If you come into church ready to get out of church, you won't get anything out of church. And I mean, I know I'm long-winded. I get that. I mean, this is just the introduction. I mean, we'll be here till four o'clock. I, I know that I'm. I understand that. But me and Miss Brenda were talking. That there was a time when when people didn't come to church to get out. They came to get in. And we need to get back to the place where we're willing to worship, even if it takes five extra minutes. I'd sooner spend that five extra minutes here than I would sitting on my couch. I'm just merely saying we've got to leave the worries of this world behind if we're ever truly going to worship. And I, listen, I'm not talking about meditation. I'm not talking about some kind of mysticism. I'm not talking about, uh, about trying to empty our minds. And, and, and I'm just merely saying when you're in church, be in church. When, you've come, when you're in your prayer closet, boy, isn't that tough sometimes? You get in the prayer closet. 
especially if you got kids. Now, mine, he can't really move a whole lot right now, but, but I mean, I was a kid. And, and uh, Were you a kid, anybody? Okay, then you know what I'm talking about. You've got kids, and all of a sudden, man, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's time to pray. And, I mean, it's World War III outside of your bedroom. You don't know, I mean, there's, you hear barnyard animals making noises inside the house. I understand it's a distraction. But if we're ever really going to worship, we're going to have to push those distractions out and get alone with the Lord. So we see that there had to be a separation. True worship is a separated thing. I want you to notice, secondly, that true worship is a sacrificial thing. You know that, don't you? This is not the first altar in Abraham's life. There have been altars basically since the day that God first spoke to him. There's been altar after altar. True worship is marked by sacrifice. True worship always, listen now, always costs you something. There's lots of folks that never worship because they're waiting for it to be convenient to worship. It'll never be convenient to worship. They're waiting for it to be comfortable to worship. It'll never be comfortable. You know, there are things, listen carefully now, there are things about worship that are repulsive to my flesh. You think I don't have pride like everybody has pride? If I'm going to raise my hands, I first have to sit my flesh down. If I'm going to shout, I first got to quiet my flesh. If I'm going to rejoice, then I first have to tell my flesh to shut up and sit down. It's repulsive to my flesh. My flesh hates true worship. It's embarrassed by worship. It's embarrassed by the tears that flow, by the praises that flow forth. It's embarrassed by those things. Sometimes it costs you your pride. Sometimes it costs you your time. Sometimes it even costs you your money. Well, that's about time to close. I guess I'll... That's not that you've got to buy a ticket to get in on it. But I do believe, I do believe that God expects His people to give. Not because He needs your money, but because sometimes that's how it gets to your heart. I'm merely saying, sometimes it'll cost you a friendship. Buddy, let me tell you something. When I started pastoring, I didn't realize how, how much that an atmosphere of worship upset some people until I started pastoring. I didn't realize how offended some of the brethren, not the brethren, the brethren, get at a church that worships. I've had, I've had pastors lie about us. Not me, us. Because when they tell a lie about Walridge, they ain't just telling a lie about me. They're telling about a lie about you. I've had pastors lie about us. I've had pastors warn people away from coming to us just a couple weeks ago. Someone that had come and heard the, had heard the sound of the gospel and got born again went back to her church and her pastor said, you don't need to go down there no more. I mean, it upsets some folks. It bothers some people atmospheres where people really, truly worship. It costs something. Sometimes it's a friendship. Sometimes it's something in your home that you cherish dearly. It cost Abraham something. What was the measure of this sacrifice? He said, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. It's not a sacrifice if you want to get rid of it. Anytime that you go, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny how folks are. Any time that, that you have, you know, we, we took up clothes for the Indians back of this. And that's, a, man, that's, you got to be careful. Because people want to help, right? People want to help. They want to bring stuff. 
And then some folks just know they're going to church. They'd rather go to the church than the goodwill. And Right? I mean, that's true. Some of you sorted through them. You know that that's true. We won't name any names, but, I, I mean, I'm just merely saying. And, and sometimes you can tell. I mean, folks, I mean, they're really going to give some. Old coat with holes in it. Give that to them, you know. Uh, old pair of pants that the hem walked off of and give that to them. Same thing is true when there's a food drive. You know the problem with having a food drive? Is you wind up with about 4,800 cans of cranberry sauce. People aren't going to give you the things that they cook. Now, true sacrifice costs us something we love. Something that means something to us. That's the reason God reaches for our wallets sometimes. Not because He needs our money. Because it's something that we love. And the truth of the matter is, too many of us are in love with money. Reaches for something that we love. Something that we care about. And then there will be someone out there that will say, Preacher, that's just too much to ask. What's the motivation for His giving? He said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship. And on the way up, Isaac says something interesting. It gets to be an awkward moment because Isaac looks at him and he says, Dad, he says, I notice we got everything we need except the sacrifice. Now, you can believe what you want. I don't believe that Isaac was a, was a six-year-old boy. I don't believe he was dumb to what was taking place. Uh, at best as we can tell, Isaac was probably in his 30s when this took place. And Isaac, I believe, was fully aware. You say, why do you believe that? Because my Jesus was fully aware of what he was doing. And it's a picture. And so I believe that Isaac was fully aware of what was taking place. But as they're going up, Abraham says something different. He says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the offering. Now, there's two ways that can be taken, and I believe both of them are true. I believe it can be understood as God will provide a lamb for himself. And I believe that's true. But I believe it also can be understood that God will provide himself as a lamb. True worship has its focus upon the cross of Calvary. I know some folks don't never preach anything, but like the gospel, just John 3.16 all the time. We're, We're commanded to preach the whole counsel of God. But I also like what one old preacher said. He said, when I take a text, I start at it and make a beeline for Calvary. Because at the end of the day, the great cohesive truth that knits together all of the Word of God and everyone that's been born again is the cross of Calvary. And you know what will humble you quicker than anything is to keep in mind that God provided Himself a lamb. Some say, preacher, I I couldn't worship like that. It's embarrassing. Imagine being dragged, beaten, and condemned as a criminal up the road and hung naked upon a cross. And tell me you're embarrassed to weep over your Lord. Tell me you're afraid to weep over your... You say, I couldn't shout. Listen to the timber in the eternal voice of the Son of God as He shouted out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And tell me that you're too prideful to shout and praise God. Again, I understand not everybody does it that way, but everybody ought to be willing. What pride there is when God gave everything and we say, I can't afford to give. What pride it is when God spoke forgiveness and we can't even speak praise. We see the motivation was the cross. That's what kept him traveling up that hill. That's what kept Abraham going was the truth that God would provide Himself a lamb. And if God would provide Himself a lamb, how could Abraham withhold His only son 
from him. No matter what you give, God's given more. I don't care what it is. No matter what you give, God's given more. Some would say, preacher, I've lost people in my life. I could never fathom. And, I, and, and off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone in this room, although I'm, there, there probably is. We lost a baby to miscarriage, but I know it's different losing a baby to miscarriage than one that you, you've held and, 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 and that you've seen and, and has grown a little bit. And there might be someone say, Preacher, God took my child from me. I can never get over that. Well, let me remind you of something. When God maybe has took your child or took someone you love, they themselves were a gift of God that He was only taking back to Himself. When God gave His Son for you, He was given His Son for an enemy. He was given His Son for someone that hated Him. He was given His Son for someone that had rejected Him. Saying no matter what God asks of you, He's never asked more than He's given. And then we see the means of this sacrifice. See, that's the other understanding of that phrase. God will provide himself a lamb. Abraham understood that if God asked him of him, then God would have to give it to him so he could give it back to God. Let me tell you something, it, it, and you've heard it a hundred times, you'll never outgive God. Ever, ever, ever outgive God. And this ain't a message about tithing, it could be about your time. One of the quickest ways to get in an early grave is to rob God of the time that's due him. I believe that when God says it'll be given unto you, pressed together and shaken over and, and shaked and baked and twisted and stirred, you know. I believe when He says that, I don't believe it just has to do with money. I think it's got to do with anything that we give to the Lord, that He'll give it back to us. Abraham understood that if God was asking it of him, then God would provide it to him to give to the Lord. We see that worship is a sacrificial thing. I'm just going to give you these last. I'm not even going to preach them. You believe that, don't you? We see that worship is a separated thing, and we see that worship is a sacrificial thing. But I want you to notice finally that worship is a steadfast thing. A very interesting dynamic has been taking place in Abraham's life. Abraham has been living in sin, and yet God seems to have had mercy and blessed him. But now Abraham is gotten right with God. And God seems to be taking from him. Abraham had been blessed with great wealth, blessed with great crops, blessed with great cattle. He's got all of his needs taken care of. Anything that a man could wish and want for, he's got an abundance of. If God had asked for cattle, it wouldn't have been much for him to give him some cattle. If God had asked for land, he had more land than he knew what to do with. But God asks for one thing that Abraham has on short supply, and that's his son Isaac. What's Abraham going to do? Will he still worship? Oh, he's built altar after altar and worshiped God. But will he build this altar? Will he make this trip? Will he serve God when it's not easy to serve God? Why don't you notice first off that true worship still worships in the face of great confusion. How could, um, imagine what it must have been like to be Abraham. For years now, God has been time and time and time and time again telling him, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, and from that son is going to come a nation. And God's given him the son. He's seen the fulfillment of God's promise. And now all of a sudden, God says, now I want him back. How confusing that must have been. Let me tell you something. You're not always going to understand God. And if you're only going if, if the only time you're going to worship is when you understand God, you're never going to worship. 
There's times I can't figure God out. Most of the time I can't figure God out. Let me tell you something. You'd laugh. You'd laugh if you knew what, what pastoring was really like. You want, let me tell you what pastoring is like. Can I share it with you? Pastoring is an unqualified individual studying a book whose depths can never be sounded, trying to grasp truths that he can never grasp with fullness, to preach about a God whom having not seen, we love and rejoice with joy unspeakable, and go to a group of people and preach about this God whom he's never seen, from a book that he really can't understand, about truths that he really can't fathom, all the while he doesn't have a clue what God's doing in the midst of his congregation. That's the truth. That's the truth. I don't have God figured out. If you think you can fit God in a box and put a bow on and be my guest... But my suspicion is this. You'll find out pretty soon God will up and do something you weren't expecting. What are you going to do when that happens? Are you going to continue to worship? Are you going to continue to serve even when you don't understand God? There's people, I promise you, in this room that can't figure out what's going on in their lives right now. Can't make sense out of it. Abraham couldn't make sense out of what was going on. But when God spoke, he said, Here am I. Here am I, Lord. I'm here, I'm ready, I'm willing, whatever it is. In the face of great confusion, but also in the face of great cost. Now, I've already kind of preached all over this, so I'm not going to labor it. But God asked for His very best. You know, the problem is this. Here's an interesting dynamic. Satan does not destroy our lives by causing us to trade God's best for His worst. But rather, by causing us to trade God's best for the second best. That's how he destroys our lives. And in the same way that God destroys our, or that Satan destroys our relationship with the Lord is by causing us not to give our worst to the Lord, but rather to give our second, maybe third best. Let me tell you the problem with all of us. I was going to say with some of you, but that sounds ugly, don't it? I'm not, I'm not mean. Let me tell you the problem with a lot of us. The problem is that God's a, God is prominent in our lives. That's the problem. You say, preacher, what do you mean that's a problem? Of course God's prominent in my life. You seen my Facebook? Put all them pictures on there. Everybody knows I'm a Christian, right? No, see, that's the problem. God's prominent in your life when He ought to be preeminent in your life. There's a lot of Christians that have God in a prominent place, but He's not preeminent. It's like the pagans. I was just watching a, a documentary the other day. You know, these documentaries, they're always true. And... uh they were talking about, uh, I don't know, some kind of, some Indians that were here uh, in, in the southern United States. I, I'm not being insensitive. I just can't remember the name of that tribe, okay? I'm not just saying some Indians, you know, I, but I don't remember. But they were talking about when the Roman Catholic Church tried to evangelize them, and they came and they, they told them that Jesus was the way to heaven. And they had these, this mass conversion taking place. Little did those priests know that all they had done was adopted the name of Jesus Christ, into the pantheon of their other gods. They had given him a place at the table. Or like the Athenians did upon Mars Hill, they set up an altar to the unknown God. They gave him a place of prominence, but not a place of preeminence. I wonder if you'd do anything for Jesus Christ. I wonder if I'd do anything for him. Anything. Anything that he asked. Well, that's all good and well and theoretical until one of these days when God asks it of us. Will we continue to worship and serve in them? And then I want you to notice that he worshiped God in the faith 
of great confidence. How did he respond to this situation? The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up his son Isaac. The Bible says this, accounting that God was able to raise him up. That's interesting. The way that Abraham dealt with this trial in his life, the way that he worshipped even though he couldn't understand, was he trusted God. That God, if he had asked two things that seemed to conflict, God would have to reconcile it. You say, how could God ask me to give when I'm hurting so bad financially? You just go ahead and mind the Lord and watch Him take care of that need. Let me tell you something, I give you time and time and time and time again. When people had to choose between their tithe and their groceries, and they chose their tithe, and God filled their refrigerator. Listen, I mean, this thing ain't about God filling our refrigerator. It's about obedience. If you'll obey God, you'll find that God will honor His Word every single time. You say, preacher, I can never give up somebody I love, somebody I care about. I've got a friend or a loved one, and they're tired of me talking about Jesus Christ. They're done with me witnessing to them. What do I do, preacher? You may find out if you keep praying and witnessing, the way God fixes that is not by making them all of a sudden friendly, but by saving them from their sins and redeeming them. I'm just merely saying, if God asks something from you, you better believe He'll give you the means to provide it every time.